Well, tonight we're going to be in Genesis chapter 42 and possibly 43. See how we track along. And um, this is kind of the climatic section of the passages of Genesis that deals with the life of Joseph and and the sons of of Jacob, uh, the 12 sons that become, well, more or less become the 12 tribes. And in this uh, section, 42 and 43, there's kind of an overarching theme of how God uses the evil intent of human beings. He works in the midst of those things that we do to one another to affect his purpose, his glory, and ultimately for those, just as Romans 8.28 tells us, those that are called according to his purpose it ultimately works out for them. We've, we've gone through several chapters of seeing Joseph being dealt one bad hand after another, being um, sold into slavery by his brothers, um, <clears throat> being set up by his employer's wife, being in prison for a couple of years, being forsaken by a man that he absolutely helped. And, uh, and then as we came to the cl- close of last week's Uh, chapter 41 finally the Lord is starting to bring all of the pieces of the plan together Joseph is now the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth and he is going to actually fulfill the prophetic dream that he had when he was a 17 year old lad he is going to be in a position where his family will, will will literally bow down to him And it'll be through the Lord's preserving Joseph through all of that uh, misfortune that will ultimately save the family of Israel and, of course, make it possible for the promise that the Lord had placed in that family to bring forth the Messiah to actually happen. So, as we saw last time, Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh that tell Pharaoh and therefore the nation that they are about to have seven great years of plenty followed by seven years of excruciating famine and the famine that they will experience in the seven years will pale by comparison with the plenty of the good years and so as Jacob brings this news to Pharaoh Pharaoh sees he's a bright lad he's got ideas he's a man with ideas he puts them in place to basically manage Egypt's resources so that they will save during the years of plenty and be prepared not only to be a source of food for their nation but for surrounding nations and so Joseph really now in a real sense is the most powerful man in the world because he holds the purse strings he holds the um, the authority over this vast store of grain that Egypt has pulled together and so guess who's going to be showing up on their doorstep and that will be his brothers coming from the land of Canaan. So we pick it up in chapter 42, and we read there in verse 1, when Jacob saw that there was uh, grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do, you, why do you look at one another? Now, just to stop there, you can kind of see what's going on here. Uh, I'm sure the family is having a powwow. They're realizing their food stores are running out. And... Um, and there's news, travelers coming through, what have, what have you. I'm sure everybody's asking, where can we find food? Where can we find bread? Um, and, and they hear that, Jacob hears that 
that Egypt has got stores of grain. And when he mentions the word Egypt, he happens to notice that his sons are all giving furtive glances at one another. And he could tell that there's something about the mention of Egypt that has them concerned. And of course, as soon as they hear uh, about Egypt, they are, their conscience is working on them. Um, and by the way, it's funny how when people have something waiting on their conscience, they know that they have done something wrong. They have sinned. It seems that as any misfortune comes into their life, they immediate, immediately associate it back to the sin that they did. Well, this must be punishment for us throwing our brother down a rat hole and then pulling him out to sell him to slavery, uh, which in this, in this case might happen to be true. But his, their father really kind of sees something is amiss with them when he mentions Egypt. And he said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's 10 brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers. For he said, lest some calamity befall him. Now, if you're cynical and suspicious like me, (laughs) no, not really. Um, But you can't help but read that and see that Joseph... I mean, Jacob, in the circumstances by which he lost his son, Joseph, at least in his understanding, I don't think he probably ever fully bought what the older sons had told him. And the reason I believe that is because it became evident from the moment Joseph is mentioned in Scripture. He's the favored son. His mom was the favored wife. Jacob waited a long time for that son, that biological son, to come through his beloved wife. And so he prized that son so much that he probably showed him, well, he didn't probably, he definitely did show him undue favor compared to his brothers. And that caused them, obviously, to despise the kid. And, of course, we've already seen through the pages of, of the previous chapters that Joseph, he's just one of those people that's got everything going for him. Good-looking guy, smart, winsome personality, you know, uh, gracious to the most for the most part, and um, and his brothers despise him for that. And now he's got this second son from the beloved wife, Benjamin. He's saying, "No, I'm not going through that. I've seen that movie. I'm not doing. I'm not going there again. That kid's staying with me." And so he sends his sons. Uh, to go and buy grain from Egypt. Now, I, I'm sure as, as Jacob is, is going through all of these plans and sending his sons, he's probably believing that God has forsaken him. He's probably believing that, you know, I lost my son Joseph to a terrible, if he buys the, the story that his sons told him, to a terrible accident or a terrible situation in the wilderness where my, uh, my son was eaten by wild animals or whatever. And now our family is starving to death. And he's, he's probably gotten divorced from the fact that God Almighty made a promise to his grandfather who then per- personally extended the promise to his father and then appeared to him on more than one occasion and and establish the promise with him. And we can be in this same situation where 
as, as life circumstances start to turn decidedly negative for us, we, we could be consumed with worry. I mean, it's a natural reaction to be consumed with worry. But we see what Jesus taught in Matthew 6, 31 through 33. He said, therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For all, after all these things, <clears throat> the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I mean, another way to look at Jacob's situation is his son was taken from him, Joseph, I mean, for the exact purpose that some 13, 15 years in the future, Joseph would be uniquely positioned to provide them what they need to eat, to provide salvation for their family. We don't get to see over the horizon, so to speak, the timeline of our circumstances. And so for us to presume on our current circumstances as being decidedly negative and terrible without knowing the way in which the Lord is working in them so that at some point down the road, our good is promoted in an even better way than we could have imagined. This is, you know, famine is not a good thing, but God uses it in this case as a means by which, first of all, he's going to restore this family and second of all, he's, go- he's, he's already ahead of the famine by positioning Joseph in a place where he will be able to save his family. This is, this is Romans 8, 28 in action. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We see it here uh, in action. So verse 5, the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, uh, for, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Now, remember chapter 37, where Joseph had those dreams, and, and in those dreams, the, the, the message that was being conveyed in those dreams was that his family would be bowing down to him. That was a prophetic a vision that God had given to him. And, um, and of course, his brothers, his brothers ended up throwing him in a, in a hole and then selling him into slavery to try and thwart those dreams from coming true. And now here they are, um, and they are bowing down to him. And, uh, and it's amazing how the evil that human beings can gin up in their heart to try and thwart the plans of God ultimately end up glorifying him. It, it's, there's a, a verse in Psalm 76, Psalm 76.10. We read there, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. Um, and and this, is, this is something that St. Augustine said about that verse. He said that God judged it better to bring good out of evil than to not permit any evil to exist. You know, we we sometimes wonder, God, why do you let bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? And, And of course, the simple answer to that is the world is a fallen place. We know that when sin entered, it didn't only corrupt the human heart, but it corrupted the creation. And so things like famines and natural disasters occur and rather than God saying well we can't have that you know and and undo 
a decision that people made for themselves. God says, nope, evil is going to exist because of the fall, but I am going to work in the midst of evil for good, such that even when evil people devise plans to try and destroy other people, innocent people, weak people, in their, in their threshing about in their evil ways, God is being glorified in the midst of that and the way in which he brings resolution to that. Um, and this is something we have to understand in our lives, that God permits trials to happen in our lives, but in the midst of those, there's always a way in which God can be glorified if we remain faithful to him as we go through those trials. And so uh, Joseph is pretty much the poster child for that kind of concept. And so um, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, verse 7, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. So I can imagine that Joseph probably at least a little bit was really enjoying this moment, you know, of kind of uh, playing the, the strong leader of a foreign government and he's got these, these 10 sniveling uh, people from the land of Canaan begging bread and he's he, he, I'm sure he, he made the most of that. And then he says to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. They lied right there. You know, beware when people feel the need to emphasize to you how honest they are because that always is a sign that maybe they're not. Um, we, are, we are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today and one is no more. Now, this sets up an opportunity for Joseph to use the situation for, for the good of God. And here's what I mean. It would, if, if Joseph was the bitter ungodly kind of person that we could imagine in this situation. He, he, he could have gone through with having these men tried and executed as spies. He could have done that. I mean, if, if he really wanted to say, okay, brothers, I'm glad you're here, and now it's payback time. And he could have, he, he literally could have used his power to, to undo these guys, or at, or at the very least, he could have just sent them home with no bread at all, with no, with no grain at all. But, but he's... he's He's going to use the opportunity in a way in which God uh, very often works with us. The Lord has set up this situation because, let's face it, these 10 individuals, as roguish as we have seen them be, I mean, we've been through a number of accounts of how these individuals are, have been ungodly. My goodness, uh, Reuben actually slept with his father's wife, okay? I mean, uh, Judah lied to his son's widow and then ultimately has sex with her thinking she was a harlot. And you don't know what's worth worse, if she really was a harlot or if she was his daughter. I mean, it's all bad. These men are not perfect men. But these are the men that God chose 
that would ultimately be the progenitors of his chosen people, Israel. And so God is going to use Joseph, whose heart is more with God perhaps than his brothers, to bring about learning, godly learning, something we all need in our lives. This is the way it's, it's told to us in Psalm 119, verse 65 through 72. And these are verses I've gone to before when I know I've messed up and I'm, and I'm trying to understand how God is going to use it. And here we're told. The psalmist says, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I have, I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than a thousand of coins of gold and silver. See, these men, these ten brothers, their hearts were as fat as grease. When you, when you think you can live apart from the justice and the, and the all-seeing eye of God, you, you can do horrible things and think you can get by it. It's funny, though, how as soon as Jacob mentioned the fact that there's grain in Egypt and you guys ought to go there, all of a sudden they're very concerned. They're very unsettled. And what the Lord is going to do in this, this little ruse that Joseph's about to play on his brothers, is he gonna, he's going to teach him in a real-life lesson his statutes. They will ultimately, I believe, they will ultimately be better men for having gone through this experience. And so um, we read there in verse 14, but Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, you are spies. In this manner, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Now here, I believe Joseph is probably testing them to see how they're treating him. Because he, like Joseph, is the son of Rachel. A favored, I'm sure he's the favored son. Well, the youngest child always is favored. That's why I'm a spoiled brat. I was the youngest. Um, but he wants to see what their relationship is with Joseph. And so, or I'm sorry, with, with Benjamin. Um, verse 16, send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, you shall, you, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Now that had to be at least a little payback. I mean, he was in a hole for a while and then sold to slavery and then put in prison for two years. And so he puts his brothers in prison for three days. But again, you can see the heart of Joseph. He's not, he's not taking liberty here to really um, twist the knife in his brothers. Then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live for I fear God. See that? He, he sees the mercy of God in the situation. He even calls it out and says, I fear God. So we got a new plan here. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses. See, now here, Joseph has concern for the welfare of his father because his father is back in the land of Canaan, and of course, all their little ones and everything, all his extended family. 
So he realizes, I can't keep them all here. They need to get this food back home. And so he lets nine of the brothers go, and he, he will keep one. But listen to this other uh, condition in verse 20. He says, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when we pleaded, when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. Now, apparently they're saying all this in front of Joseph, because Joseph, in their mind, is an Egyptian. Because Joseph, up till this point, had been speaking to them through an interpreter. But he understands their language perfectly well. And so, they, verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. See, he's hearing the confession of his brothers. And he's hearing it in the most uh, candid of terms. He, they're saying among themselves, we heard his anguish. We heard his pleas. We heard the desperation in his voice. And our cold, hard hearts did not get moved by that. In fact, we decided we'll make some money and sold him. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Now, we don't get any indication as to why Simeon and, and not one of the other brothers um, if he had listened carefully, he would have probably known that it was Judah's idea to sell him into slavery. He might have said, well, let's take Judah, but he didn't. Um, and I want to just bring up something else, by the way, that, that is an interesting thought about how this whole situation has tracked with Joseph up to this point. Of the, of the 12 brothers, the, the one brother that was, seemed to be singled out for calamity after calamity after calamity was Joseph. And you'd have to conclude that Satan had an awful lot to do with that. And the reason why, at least a reason why, Joseph seemed to be singled out for all of this trouble and calamity is that Satan, up until this point, in fact, up until chapter 49 of, the, of Genesis, Satan doesn't know from which brother the line will track to Messiah. We know that Messiah came from the line of Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the descendant and he is the heir to David's throne. That is not known at this point in time. And as much as sometimes we forget it, Satan is not omniscient. Satan doesn't know everything God knows. And we will not see established Judah as the brother through whom Messiah will come until Jacob is nearing his death and he prophesies over each brother. And... Um, We'll, we won't discuss it now for the interest of time, but when we get to chapter 49, and Jacob is issuing his last words over each of his sons, he will say concerning Judah, among other things, he will say that the scepter 
shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now, this is a, it doesn't sound like a lot, um, but that particular verse is considered one of the most profound and meaningful messianic prophecies in all the Bible. But that's the point at which the Lord gives to Jacob the prophecy that of his 12 sons and his two grandsons, um, it will be Judah through whom Messiah will come. And so we might surmise, and again, this is not thus saith the Lord. You won't find this little description anywhere else in the Bible. But Satan up to this point, looking at how his father is favoring Joseph and all, maybe he just zeroed in on Joseph because of what he saw and in the absence of what he didn't know. Um, But in the meantime, the Lord is working in the midst of the very calamity that has been caused in Joseph's life, again, to affect his purpose. I'm sure Satan probably felt pretty good about, you know, orchestrating events to put Jesus on the cross only to realize that he just blasted himself through the temple because he, def- he was defeated on the cross. And so, I mean, it's kind of an interesting dynamic to think about. Um, so, so, the brothers now returned to the land of Canaan, verse 25. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money back to his sack, to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So, Joseph orders his minions to pack up sacks of grain that each brother had previously given money for pack up the sacks of grain but put their money back in their bags so in other words this grain is gratis joseph is blessing them but doing so in a way that they're going to have some panic so they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there and uh But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money. And there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored. And there it is in my sack. And their hearts failed them. And they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just deliciously funny how these guys are just racked with guilt you know that what they've done to their brother and now they're worried because their money's the money's in the sack so they're going to be accused of having stole the money back and everything and and it's amazing how a guilty conscience will see every trouble as a penalty for their sin and their conscience will get at them. You realize the United States government actually has what's known as the Federal Conscience Fund. And the Federal Conscience Fund is the fund within the government that collects money that people send in because they know that they cheated the government in some way. Uh, it may be that they were in the army and they came home with, with equipment or blankets or something as a souvenir that they, they were supposed to give back. Like my dad said, after World War II, a lot of the officers in the Air Force that he was in kept their sidearm, which they were supposed to, you know, give back. And, and a lot of people cheat on their taxes. 
And then it bothers them so much that they send money in, uh, usually anonymous, so they don't get arrested. Uh, there was one guy, <laughs> there was one guy who wrote the IRS and he said, I cheated on my taxes and I can't sleep at night. Here is a check for $100. If I still can't sleep, I'll send in the rest that I owe. <laughs> but there actually is such a thing because, because people will be consumed with their guilt. Now, not all of the people who cheat on their taxes do that, obviously. The prisons have a pretty large population of people who didn't have any problem with it at all until the IRS came knocking. Um, but, but the brothers now, they're panicking because... They've got the guilt of having betrayed their brother. Now they have the guilt of something that they actually didn't do, but they're going to be accused of it. And, uh, and so uh, they, they say, we see there in verse 28, so he said to his brothers, my money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? Amazing how they put it on God, isn't it? Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man who is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are honest men, liars. We are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, by this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of, the, of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me so I shall know that you are not spies, but the, that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks they surprisingly, that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack and when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. So again, we see, we see Jacob's faith really shattered, really faltering. He's counting up all these different things. And he's, he's seeing how um, with each one of these things, he's being put down. His, his expectations, his happiness is being eroded. And he interprets that as God being against him. And this is why I read that passage out of Psalm 119. Sometimes it's because God is for you that he brings things like this into your life. He's... He's not worried about your day-to-day -day happiness. He's worried about your ultimate sanctified life. He's worried, he's concerned with, he's at, he's at work to conform us into the image of Christ. He's not there to be your butler, your driver, uh, your therapist. He's there to be your God and to conform you into the image of his son. And, um, and we could see, you know, in the case of both Jacob and his sons, that really their conscience, their, the conscience that they bear has not been a reliable guide for them up to this point. Uh, in fact, our conscience is, is often referred to as, as uh, the sundial of the soul. Sundial, if you know how to work them, 
can tell time pretty well while the sun is shining. But when the sun isn't shining, it's worthless. Equally, our conscience isn't much of a guide unless the SON is shining in our lives. And, and, and what we calibrate our conscience to is the word and the way of God. If God is out of the picture, uh, it's like you know being in the dark with a sundial and you use a flashlight and depending on which way you shine it, you get a different reading. And, and so this whole family is just learning you know, graduate level lessons in how to follow God and how to view life circumstances when you're walking with God and under God and, and they are not getting it up to this point. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. So Reuben is saying, look, dad, if we don't take Benjamin with us back there, we cannot go back for more food. Trust me on this. Of course, he's the one that slept with his father's wife, but trust me on this. And if I fail to bring back Benjamin, you can kill my two sons. Now, I don't know how that's a benefit. So let's see, I'm going to lose my son, and so I'm going to make it better by killing my two grandsons. I mean, honestly, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, <laughs> um, verse 38, but Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. And so this is, this is where he, he, he lands. But verse, 40, or verse 1 of chapter 43, now the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. Wow, you know, we could only wonder how much time has elapsed here because they had to first travel to Egypt. Then they were there some days, at least three, uh, in Egypt. Then they had to travel back. Then they had to consume the food they brought back. Now they're out of food and they got to travel back. So we don't get exactly at what, how much time transpired, but it had to be weeks, months, But Judah spoke to him saying, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, why do you deal so wrongfully with me? As I tell the man, uh, why, why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And of course, what Jacob is, is advising these honest men <laughs> is to lie. And we told him according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. 
For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. And their father Israel said to them, if, you must, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Perhaps at this point, Jacob is remembering uh, how well it was when he met up with his brother Esau and put out in front of him before he and Esau saw each other all of these presents of flocks and whatnot and how that kind of uh, smooth over their meeting. Um, and so he's, he's telling his sons, look, this time bring a gift. Bring some of the nice things of our land. Then he says in verse 12, take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Now it's interesting that they had sold Joseph for 20 uh, pieces of silver and uh, in Hebrew the word for silver and the word for money are pretty much the same and so 10 men and I'm sure they were bringing Simeon's portion taking double money that's 20 monies which is kind of like a, a, a just amount considering that uh, they had sold their brother for 20 monies if you will verse 13 take your brother also and arise go back to the man and, and say, God Almighty or El Shaddai, give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. I think hunger is now getting to Jacob and he's saying, okay, this is what we have to do. And if I'm going to be bereaved from the loss of my sons, then I guess I'm going to have to be bereaved. So the men took that present and Benjamin and they took the double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt. And they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. Now this is the first indication now that, uh, that Joseph is ready to, to reveal who he is and to reveal what he wants to do with his brothers. And now he's gonna treat them like brothers. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid, again, their conscience is bearing heavy on them, because they were brought into Joseph's house, and they said, it is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house, and said, oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand, and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put money in our sacks. But he said, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Now, this steward of the house, um, he and Joseph must have had a good talk or something, but he's basically putting it back on them that it was their God that blessed them with their money. 
He said, don't, don't worry, we have your money, I had your money. Now, and technically, the steward was not lying because they did have their money, but they put it back. But he's also not lying in that it really was God who orchestrated all this, really did bless them by giving them their money back. So again, the God lessons that are coming at them fast and furious here are breaking down the evil of their heart, piercing through their conscience, showing them grace when, I mean, this is, this is the same story of you and me, is that God's mercies were coming at us fast and furious long before we ever got saved. You know, sometimes people who don't know the Lord have very ungrateful hearts. You know, if, if 90% of their life is a blessing, they're going to grouse about the 10% and curse God to his face because of the 10%. But the fact of the matter is, every day is a gift. The people in our lives are blessings. Our health is a blessing. Our very life is a blessing. And these things are given to us out of the graciousness of God not because we deserve them. These guys certainly didn't deserve any grace, any benefit at all. But this is the Lord working, again, according to what we read in Psalm 119, he's used all of this chastisement, all of this anguish, all of this torture to break them down so that they could see the truth. Verse 24, so the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they wash their feet. This is the kind of courtesy you give to people that come into your house that you receive as guests who you want to honor. You, you allow them to refresh themselves, which in those days started with washing your feet. And he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that he would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? Now, obviously, Joseph genuinely wants the answer to this question because he loves his dad. And they answered, your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your younger brother? of whom you spoke to me. And they said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. Again, the heart of Joseph is just mind-blowing how, um, how tender he is, how dearly he loves his family, how much he wants to uh, do the right thing in any given situation. Then he washed his face and came out. And he restrained himself and said, serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now here's where I got to point something out. Perhaps you've not thought about this, but this, this verse right here gives us clear indication. God, wants, God has constantly been advising his people, Israel, from the moment he called Abraham out, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. He would constantly send them back to their people to find their brides. Did not want them to take a bride from the land of Canaan. Did not want them to fraternize with, intermarry with, 
be associated with, be influenced by the people of Canaan. The people of Canaan were desperately wicked for centuries. And God had had determined that the land of Canaan would be the land for his people. But the people of Canaan, he wanted them to be utterly destroyed. Now, at this point in time, the nation Israel, if we want to call it that, probably numbered in the hundreds of people, maybe a thousand people, however many. It was a small number by any standard of a nation. God wants to build that nation. God wants to build that nation in a way that does not corrupt it or pollute it. Gee, if I'm God, where would I send my few people so that they could grow into a full nation of people and not be influenced by the pagan or ungodly or abominations of the people in in whom I plant them. How about the most racist country on the earth of that time? That was Egypt. The Egyptians viewed themselves as descending from God and everybody else were heathens, were people that they would not associate with. It was such that the priests of of the uh, religion of the predominant religion of Egypt would not even use something that came from another country or eat a article of food from another country. They 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 had disdain for any non-Egyptian person, which is why they wouldn't even eat with Joseph because he was not technically an Egyptian, but he was their boss. He was their master. And so they ate separate, Joseph ate separate, and Joseph purposely kept himself from, you know, from being with his brothers because he was continuing to keep the distance till the right time. But understand that God placing them in Egypt, he could have sent them anywhere. He could have sent them north, he could have sent them east, but no, he sent them southwest to Egypt because God knew that in that setting, they would be, they would be quarantined, if you will. They would become a nation under themselves, the Egyptians would not be tempted to fraternize with them, would not allow themselves to be intermarried with them. And so God could bring forth a pure nation that ultimately he would move en masse back to the land of Canaan when they would be strong enough to then start to systematically conquer the land. And so again, this is, I mean, that's not even going to happen for over 400 years. But God's, you know, He's playing chess, three-dimensional chess, while the rest of us are trying to play marbles, you know. So um, so verse 33, and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked in astonishment at one another. Now, what we're reading there in verse 33 is that Joseph had assigned seats for all, all the, the 11 brothers now. And lo and behold, Joseph sat him in exactly their birth order. Now, if you took 11 men and were going to, and you didn't know them, or presumably you didn't know them, and you were asked to, to order them from oldest to youngest, it's been calculated that you would have about a one in 40 million chance of getting that perfectly right. This is why the brothers are looking at each other in astonishment like, boy, how do you know that? Then he, took, then he took servings to them from before them, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as theirs, so they drank and they were merry with him. Now, that was a test on Joseph's part too. 
because he knew how his brothers treated him because he had that wonderful multicolored coat. And so it's like, well, how are they going to feel when I give him, you know, I give Benjamin a rack of lamb and the rest of them get a lamb chop. And so, um, but it says they made merry with him. And so Joseph's starting to feel better about it. So we'll, we'll conclude uh, this encounter with Joseph and his brothers next time when we pick it up in chapter 44. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for just for preserving this record, Lord, and for the lessons that flow from Joseph's life, Lord, and, and for his, his patience, Lord, to let your plan unfold, his continued devotion, even when he was dealt one calamity after another, and most of which was not even his doing or his fault. Thank you, God, that you were gracious and patient with his brothers, whose consciences were, were guided and uh, misguided and, and, uh, and, and the evil of their hearts was ultimately used for your glory. You were glorified in the midst of their evil. And, and so, Father, we, we learn lessons from this. We understand how your loving care for us is so great that you'll allow the tragedies and the trials that come into our lives to be used by you, Lord, to shape us, to mold us for our betterment, for your glory. And so, God, we give you thanks and praise for your goodness, for your great love for us, for your great care for us, Lord, for your perfect wisdom that guides our lives, even when we don't like what we're going through in the moment. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for meeting us here tonight. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.